This morning's text is Mark 1, 16 through 20. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, Follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boat mending the nets. And immediately he called to them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. Well, as uh, next month's election draws ever near, uh, we are increasingly bombarded with political advertisements on, on television or on social media, basically wherever you go, uh, from nearly every candidate. And these advertisements oftentimes will vary in quality. You have some that are very well made, uh, some that are clever, uh, and some that are clearly made on small budgets. Uh, you have, uh, they vary in message. Some are positive and some or most of them are negative and they vary in viewpoint. Uh, some say that the current office holders are the best thing to happen to our country since sliced bread and the others say that they are the cause for the apocalypse that is coming ever closer. But they all have seemingly one thing in common and that is they place the utmost priority on this moment in time, on this election, and indeed, on your vote as quite possibly the most important vote in all of human history. And of course, it is good. It is important. It is our civic duty for us to vote. But in the midst of the constant rhetoric claiming that this is, quote, the most important moment in all of human history, I fear that we can become anesthetized uh, against the, the actual moments of, of supreme importance in human history. Six years ago, on the eve of the 2012 presidential election, author uh, David Mathis wrote this about, he, it was a very important reminder for us. He wrote this, Jesus's mission is bigger than next Tuesday's election, way bigger. The Great Commission summons to make disciples both by reaching out for more quantity and going deep for more quality relativizes the stock Jesus's followers put in any political endeavor. Christians aren't to be dead set on winning elections, but instead on making disciples. We put, we put our best eggs in the disciple-making basket, not the ballot box. We are not to be surprised by defeat in the short run, as made clear in Revelation 13.7, but bank on triumph in the long haul, as we see in Revelation 21. We may lose the election, but we will win the world. And indeed, as we open this morning's text, we see an altogether otherworldly description of Jesus' primary mission. Jesus uh, opens uh, his ministry by declaring what his mission is. And Jesus' mission is not one of political conquest. It is not one of getting the right form of government in place. Or it's not even to get the right people in government as much as it is on the proclamation that his kingdom has come. 
Indeed, the topic of the mission and the message of Jesus is one of the most important things for us to understand today because we do not want to miss this. We don't want to, to, to be wrong on this. And thankfully, here in this text that Karen just read to us, the Gospel of Mark gives us a very clear picture of what Jesus' mission and message are. Over the past few weeks, as we've been working our way through the gospel of Mark, we've begun our journey on this, on this short gospel, and we've seen Mark make several different claims about who Jesus is. We've seen him make several different claims about what Jesus has come in order to do. We have seen him say that, that Jesus is the one who is going to usher in God's long-awaited deliverance for his people, that he is the one who is finally going to restore God's broken creation to its former glory. We've actually seen him say that Jesus is God himself come to earth, and we've seen him declare that Jesus is the long-awaited king of God's kingdom. Last week, we saw that Jesus, in, in, in his temptation, and indeed in the face of temptation throughout his entire life, Jesus is the only one who remains perfectly faithful, perfectly obedient to his Father, which culminates in the cross. And here this morning, we see the beginning of Jesus' earthly ministry. This is a, a text that stands in the place of supreme importance as we study the gospel of Mark, because Mark intends for this to be the lens through which we understand the rest of his gospel. And so as we look at this text this morning, I hope one thing becomes abundantly clear to us, and that is this, the, the fullness of history centers on the person and the mission of Jesus. And then Mark forces us to ask a question. Are you a part of it? The fullness of history, not just human history, the fullness of, of history itself centers on the person and the mission of Jesus. Are you a part of it? In this text, Jesus speaks for the first time in the gospel of Mark, and he gives us insight into what he understands to be his mission and the message that he communicates of God's plan to restore, uh, to restore God's creation. But it doesn't just give us insight into the mission and the, the message of the king. As Mark has already done time and time again in this gospel, this is, this is not something that we can remain neutral on. It forces a response from us when it comes to the king, when it comes to his kingdom. You are either a part of his kingdom and as such, you are committed to the same mission, to the same message as Jesus, or you stand opposed to his kingdom. So here's our roadmap for this morning. As we consider the beginning of Jesus' earthly ministry in these, in these verses, I want us to do so first by just considering the mission of Jesus, and second, by looking at his message. The fullness of history centers on the person and the mission of Jesus. Throughout it all, I want us to ask this morning, are we a part of it. Let's pray as we approach God's word. God, we uh, rejoice that we can gather around your word this morning, and we do so with gratitude. We do so with gratitude that you have spoken to us throughout the ages, but in these last days that you have spoken to us through your son. And God, we thank you for the finality of his message, uh, of his mission, one that you have also called us to. And so as we look at this text this morning, God, one on, uh, that just talks about the, the call and the cost of discipleship. God, we ask that we would do so in light of the truth, that while Jesus has accomplished his mission, that Jesus has proclaimed his message, our mission is not yet complete. 
And so, God, we ask that you would stir within each and every one of us, from the youngest here to the, the oldest, a, a passion for your mission and for your message. And so speak, God, because your church longs to hear. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, first, let's look at the mission of Jesus. It's described in verses 14 and 15. Let's uh, look at those verses again. It says this, Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Now, Mark doesn't make this clear, but we know from the Gospel of John, there's about a year that passes between Mark chapter 1, verse 13, and where we pick up this morning in verse 14. And during this unspoken year, we see that John the Baptist's ministry begins to wane while Jesus gains uh, popularity, his preaching picks up steam, and eventually, John the Baptist is arrested for his message of repentance, his message of the coming kingdom of God. And significantly... It isn't until John is arrested that Jesus actually officially begins his ministry. He enters into Galilee, uh, appearing for the first time here in the Gospel of Mark with this message on his lips about the coming kingdom of God. And we see that Jesus here in these verses declares that his mission is simply this. Jesus ushers in the kingdom of God. Jesus ushers in the kingdom of God. So let's take his, his first words here and consider their meaning. Jesus begins, first words in the gospel, he begins by saying that the time is fulfilled. Well, the time for what is fulfilled? And he continues and says, the kingdom is at hand. Now, uh, we're going we're gonna to talk a little bit about ancient Greek here, so, so stay with me. Uh, ancient Greek had two words for time. There was one word, chronos, and one word, kairos. And they have vastly different meanings, but both of these meanings are conveyed in the English word Time. So let's parse out the differences here. Uh, again, chronos, kairos. Most of the time when we think of the word time, we're thinking of something measurable. So if someone asks you a question and says, what time is it? They're, they're asking for a reference about what part of the day it is. How can I measure what part of the day it is? How, how long have I been awake? How long until I get to go to bed? How, how long until the kids go to bed? It's something measurable. All right. Or if someone says, uh, it's supper time, that's another declaration that's measurable. That it, the time has arrived for people to sit down and to have a meal. This is chronos. It's something basic. It's measurable. It's just referring to the, to the passing of time. But other times when we use the word time, we, we think of something, di- we mean something different, uh, more significant. Uh, how many of you are a Chicago Cubs fan? Any, any Cubs fans here this morning? All right. Uh, how many of you are embarrassed to admit? No, I'm kidding. Um, <laughs> all right. How many of you are aware uh, of uh, up until a couple years ago, they were on this very, very long drought between winning World Series, all right? Yeah? Raise your hand if you're aware of that. So if you weren't aware of that, uh, between 1908 and 2016, the Cubs, didn't, they failed to, uh, to win a World Series. Uh, it's uh, an exercise in futility to try to understand how that happened. Uh, but but they, they went 108 years in between winning a, a World Series. And if you were to go back to October of 2016 and you were to have a conversation with a Cubs fan and you're sitting down with a Cubs fan, you'd probably hear them talk a lot in, in language like this. They would say something like, it's finally time or it's our time. The time has come. And what do they mean by that? Did they mean that there is some un, 
uh, unwritten rule that there's some measurable amount of time that, that a, a baseball team, that's a professional baseball team on the north side of Chicago, if they are going to win a World Series, they actually have to literally wait 108 years before they're allowed to win another one. And they're actually counting down the time. They've been measuring it since 1908 all the way to 2016. So that way they can finally win another series. No, the, the meaning time here, it means something different in the moment. It's this sense of, of destiny, that the time we have waited for has, has finally come. This is kairos. This, this word time has a weight that, that time is moving ever forward. It's going toward this inescapable conclusion, this destiny that something will at long last be fulfilled. And it is this sense of kairos that's oftentimes used in political campaigns as well, as we talked about that earlier. Time is rushing toward this destiny. Time is rushing toward fulfillment that will be ushered in, according to political campaigns, with a certain political candidate. And so we oftentimes hear speeches like this from a candidate a few years ago. We meet at one of these defining moments. This moment, this moment, this election is our chance to keep in the 21st century the American promise alive. This is this idea that, that uh, time is rushing toward fulfillment. And you see, whether we realize it or not, each of us have lives that are pointed toward Kairos. They're pointed toward a certain goal, some moment in time, whether it's spoken or unspoken. This moment where we feel like fulfillment will finally come. Now go back to Jesus' words in Mark chapter 1, verse 15, when Jesus says the time has come. Is Jesus using chronos, referring to something measurable, or is he referring to kairos, this end goal, this fulfillment that, that all of time is rushing toward? Yeah, Jesus is using kairos. He's referring to this moment in history in which history is rusting, this, this destiny for history, this one defining moment where fulfillment is finally coming. And when Jesus declares that the time has come, he is making explicit what John has alluded to earlier in this gospel, that the moment God's people have longed for, the moment where God's creation will finally be made right, where God is going to make everything new, when God is finally going to restore his kingdom, that moment has finally come. That is why I say that our text declares the fullness of history centers on the person and mission of Jesus. Not just human history, not just Jewish history, but all of history from the dawn of creation, all of it has waited with bated breath for this moment, for the revelation of just how and through whom God is going to make all things new. Jesus, his first words in the gospel are of supreme importance. They're this astounding claim because Jesus is essentially saying to everyone who would listen, whether you realize it or not, I'm the one you've been waiting for. Whether you realize it or not, whether you are a Christian or not, whether you're a Jew or not, whether you want anything to do with God or not, whether you realize it or not, I am the one that you have been waiting for. You see here in his first recorded words in the gospel, we're given a glimpse of Jesus' mission. We already mentioned it. Jesus comes to usher in the kingdom of God, the long-awaited kingdom of God. It begins with Jesus right here in this moment when he steps onto Galilean soil and he opens his mouth with these words, the time is at hand. Of course, it was Jesus' proclamation here that led to his own arrest, just like John. Uh, it was Jesus' words here, this proclamation that leads to his eventual execution, just like John. 
If you come proclaiming a new kingdom uh, to the masses, the people in charge of the current kingdom, they're probably not going to like that all that much. In fact, we see at the end of the Gospels that when Jesus is before Pilate, the reason Pilate eventually decides to execute him is not because he thinks he's guilty, but because he's worried that word is going to get back to Caesar, that there was this person, this imposter, claiming to set up his own kingdom, and Pilate let him go. And so Pilate decides, well, I don't want that to happen. I'm concerned about my political career, and so I'm going to execute this Jesus. Jesus' kingdom has come. Jesus comes to, f- to bring his kingdom, but it's not at all the ki- type of kingdom that the world expects. Jesus makes that very clear when he's before Pilate. John chapter 18 says this, Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over, like, over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not of the world. Jesus's kingdom is indeed established here after a battle But it's not a battle of flesh and blood, but instead it's a battle where he offers up his own flesh and his own blood. And contrary to to common expectations in that day, this kingdom does not grow the way the world would expect. It does not grow through coercion. It does not grow through military expansion. It grows in a different way. Now, Mark, uh, the Gospel of Mark, as we know, it's, it's the shortest of, of all the Gospels. Mark does not include a lot of the teachings of Jesus. If you want to look at the teachings of Jesus, go to the Gospel of John or, or, or of, of Luke uh, or, or, of course, of Matthew. Uh, but there's one exception to that. Jesus inc- uh, Mark includes a lot of Jesus' teachings on the kingdom. In fact, Mark chapter 4 is, is a bunch of parables that all focus on Jesus' teachings about the kingdom. He can, it describes the growth of the kingdom, the spread of the kingdom Jesus comes to establish. And so he describes how it will grow in Mark chapter 4, starting in verse 30. It says this, And Jesus said, With what can we compare the kingdom of God? Or what parable shall we use for it? It is like a grain of mustard seed, which when sown on the ground is the smallest of all the seeds of the earth. Yet when it is sown, it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants and puts out large branches so that the birds of the air can make nests in its shade. What Jesus is saying here, he's saying that this kingdom will not start with great fanfare. It will not start with the majesty that people would expect. It's not a mighty oak. It's a simple garden plant, a mustard seed. But instead, it's going to start among the most unlikely of people. It's going to start, as we're going to see from this text, it's going to start with people like fishermen from backwater Galilee. It will be made up of, as Paul wrote to the church in Corinth, the have-nots of the world, those that are far from political power, those from far from social power. Paul writes this, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many of were powerful. Not many of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Here in Mark chapter 1, Jesus appears. He's declaring his kingdom. He's saying that his kingdom is at hand. It has come, but it hasn't come the way the world expects for it to come. But instead, it's come to bring people from every language, every tribe, every tongue, every people, every nation. He comes to bring people from every socioeconomic background, people from every educational background. He decides to to bring in people from every background, as diverse as the colors of fall. 
not just the Jewish people. What is Jesus's mission here? It is to restore God's creation. It is to usher in the kingdom of God for all peoples. And to do that, Jesus has to die on the cross, the king on the cross. So that's Jesus's mission. But what of his message? Or in other words, Jesus has this mission. How does Jesus communicate that mission to other people? Well, Jesus calls his people to three responses in response to his mission. He calls them to respond with costly faith, costly repentance, and finally with costly obedience. Let's read our text once more. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of the God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. And passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little further, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boats, mending their nets. And immediately he called them and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. First, Jesus' message is one of costly faith. To come to King Jesus, to be a part of his kingdom in faith means coming to grips with your own sinfulness. It means coming to terms with the fact that your life isn't cleaned up, it isn't as neat, it isn't as orderly as you would like to believe, or indeed that you would like other people to believe about your life. You are not capable of saving yourself, but you are desperately in need of someone to come to your rescue. The, the way that this uh, is clearest in my mind, and probably it's just my stage of life, uh, is by looking at the lives of children when they play make-believe. So think about the last time that you played make-believe with a, a small child. And uh, how often in those times do the children let you be the superhero, or you be the doctor, or you be the, the police officer, or the person who's going to come and rescue? And how often did they decide to be the person who needs rescued, or the person who needs to go in for a checkup, or the person who needs saving? Or if you've ever been with a toddler and you say, you know what, I'm just going to feed you your food. You're making a mess. I'm, I'm just going to do this. It's for expediency. Or if you are in a hurry and you decide to pick up the child and carry them into the store rather than letting them walk on their own, you will be surprised at the overreaction that you get from such a simple move. Why is that? It's because we like being the hero. We like being the one who is the rescuer, not the one who is rescued, not the one who needs help. But to respond in faith to the message of the kingdom, to respond in faith to this message that the time has come, to respond in faith to the message of the gospel that is costly, it means to come to grips with the fact that you can't save you. You can't save you. You aren't the one who is the superhero you're the one who desperately needs help. You're not the helper. You're the one who needs helping. And the thing is, this is not just a once and for all battle in our lives. It's something that's continual on a daily basis in our lives. We are prone to forget just how desperately we need help. And so we may exercise saving faith in our life, but we don't like depending upon God in the day-to-day -day of our lives. 
Jesus' message of the kingdom is, is one which says, if you want to enter my kingdom, it is going to cost you. It's going to cost you your pride. It's going to cost you the self-illusion that you are doing okay on your own, that you don't desperately need to depend upon me on a daily basis. It is to pray and to live out Jesus' words in the Lord's Prayer. Give us this day our daily bread. It is to rely on him daily. Jesus' message calls us to respond with this type of costly faith. Second, it also calls, uh, this message uh, calls us to respond with costly repentance. Uh, a couple weeks ago when we looked at John the Baptist, we saw that this word repentance just means to turn around and to go the other direction. Now, the idea of repentance isn't something that is too common uh, today. It is actually somewhat offensive in certain, uh, certain circles to talk about repentance. It's oftentimes the butt of jokes that someone would stand on a street corner shouting, repent. And repentance is, is probably not the subject of the times where you have your neighbors over for a meal. You sit down at the table and say, hey, let's talk about repentance. It's probably not something that you talk about with your coworkers. You sit down at the break room and say, hey, I need to repent. And honestly, if we're being honest with ourselves, repentance is probably not the, the subject of conversations that take place before or after church. We, we don't naturally like this idea of rep repentance, and yet repentance was a very big deal for Jesus. Jesus begins his ministry here at the beginning of the gospel by saying that anyone who wants to enter into his kingdom has to do so with repentance. And at the end of the Bible, Jesus is writing to a church and he's talking about how this church has become complacent. They've become wayward. They have these mixed up priorities, those who have hard parts. And he says this at the end of the, of the Bible. It says this in Revelation 2. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. You see, this idea of repentance is not just a one-time decision, but it is a daily occurrence, just like faith. We have to have this steady diet of repentance as Christians because as the, the hymn, Come Thou Fount, says, we are prone to wander. We are prone to leave the God we love. If faith is costly because it means we have to come face to face with the fact we can't save ourselves, then repentance is costly because it means we have to come face to face with the reality that we are headed down a path of destruction and that we need to turn around. It means that we have to come to grips with the fact that Jesus is telling the truth, no matter how hard that truth may be to swallow, that you are headed somewhere destructive, that we are doing things that are debil debilitating our lives because they're not centered on Christ. One, uh, uh, I just, as I read this, I, I, I think of, of this um, ancient church father. His name was Ambrose. And he talks about how, how difficult it is to repent. And he says this, Shame indeed there is when we, when we each make known our sins. But that shame, as it were, plows the land and removes the ever-recurring brambles. It prunes the thorns and gives life to the fruits which we believed were dead. The idea of repentance is painful. It is shameful to admit your faults publicly, and yet it is in the midst of that painful process that the soil of your heart is made ready for valuable fruit to grow, where the fruit of righteousness can grow. Jesus' message is that to enter his kingdom, it will cost you, and that includes 
repentance. And the third part of Jesus' message is this one of costly obedience. We see this calling, or we see this in the calling of Jesus' first disciples, Simon, Andrew, James, and John. In verses 14 and 15, we have this general call of Jesus uh, for people to, to repent and believe the gospel. And yet in verses 16 through 20, it gives us a very specific example of what this looked like. It gives us the example of what this call looked like for uh, Simon and Andrew and then for James and John. So Jesus is out. He's walking along the Sea of Galilee, and he sees some fishermen, and he calls out to them. And we're going to take a few moments and just look at his calling because it is significant. Note first that Jesus calls out, follow me. He says, follow me. Now, this is something that is very familiar to us. Of course, we think, well, Jesus, if he's calling you to discipleship, he's going to say, follow me. And yet, this is something that was very unprecedented in Jesus's day. Nowhere else would a rabbi call out to a disciple, to a potential disciple, and ask them to follow. Students chose teachers. Teachers never chose students. And so, if you wanted to learn from a rabbi, you would approach that rabbi, and you would say, hey, can I study with you? Never would a rabbi call out for disciples. But Jesus is not a regular rabbi. He doesn't wait for us to come to him. He calls out to us. He calls out and says, follow me. And in doing that, he is showing his great love for people like us. His great love for humanity, so great that he's not willing to wait, but instead he is the one who initiates a relationship with humanity and says, follow me. And yet it forces us to make a decision. If Jesus were not to call us to follow him, but instead would wait for us to make that decision on our own, what could happen is we could, in, in a very real sense, we could remain neutral. We could just ignore the question. We could push it off. And yet when Jesus calls out to each and every one of us and says, follow me, he is forcing us to make a decision. He's forcing us to say yes or we say no. He's forcing us to join into his kingdom or to ignore his kingdom. Jesus calls out, follow me. But he doesn't just say, follow me. He says, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. For many years, as I read this, I read this kind of with a smile on my face. And you say, you know what? Jesus is pretty clever. Jesus uses their vocation and he uses as a word picture for ministry. That, well done, Jesus. You know, you're, you're, good job. But that's not what Jesus is doing here. In the Old Testament, there are a handful of places that use this image of people fishing for other people. And the most common one is in Jeremiah 16. Jeremiah 16, I think it's verses 14 through 16. And it describes how God is about to send fishermen out to begin fishing for people. But there's one, notice, one notable difference between Jesus' words here in Mark 1 and the context of Jeremiah in Jeremiah 16. In Jeremiah 16, God is sending out these fishermen to catch people for judgment. He's saying that the nations are about to face judgment for their idolatry, for their wickedness, for their immorality, and being caught in God's net means you're about to face judgment. You're about to stand before God and face judgment, but that's not what Jesus is saying here. That's not what Jesus is describing here. Jesus doesn't deny that judgment is indeed coming soon. That's implied in his message when he says that the, the kingdom has finally come. But he's not calling his followers to gather people up so that way it makes, easy, it makes it easier for God to judge them. Instead, he's saying, I want you to go out as fishermen. 
I want you to go out and not bring a message of judgment. I want you to go out and bring a message of grace, a message of the gospel. Judgment is coming, but before judgment comes, go out with a message of the gospel, the message of good news. Jesus wants to gather as many people in with this incredible good news of the gospel, this message of faith of what Christ has done for us on the cross, a message of repentance to turn back to the path of God, a message of obedience to join the mission to answer God's calling to follow me. This image of of fishermen is saturated with urgency. It's, It's a very urgent calling. The time has come. The kingdom is here. Judgment is coming. And so before it is too late, God is sending people out. God is sending every one of us out. There's this urgent call to bring people into his kingdom rather than to let them be caught for judgment. So Jesus says, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. And of course, we, we see from this text that, that Jesus' call to, to costly obedience is, is, of course, on display when we see the way the disciples respond here. They give him the place of utmost supremacy in their lives. They leave behind their livelihood. They leave behind family. They do everything to follow this Jesus. The message of Jesus is one of costly obedience because what he is saying is that you need to place me in a place of priority, the place of supremacy in your life over everything in your life. Jesus is saying, I want you to think about your commitment to me before you think about your commitment to your family. I want you to think about your commitment to me before you think about your commitment to your career. I want you to think about your commitment to me before you think about your commitment to your standard of living. I want you to think about your commitment to me before you think about your commitment to your future. I want you to think about your commitment to me first before you think about your commitment to anything else. And as we look at Jesus' message, In these few verses, it is one that is absolutely unbelievable. Jesus here is saying that you need to trust him to save you, that you need to reform your life around his life by following his life. You need to reshape everything about you around who he is. And for a person to say this, it is the height of arrogance and less. Jesus is who he says he is. It is the height of arrogance for any one of us to say that you need to form your life, everything about your life, around me. But Jesus is making a declaration here about who he is. Mark is making claims about who Jesus is. If Jesus really is the one who ushers in the kingdom of God, if Jesus really is the one who's going to make all things right that are wrong in this world, if Jesus is really the one who is declaring this good news, if judgment really is coming, then Jesus' words are not arrogant at all, but they are the most gracious, the most beautiful, the most life-giving words that we could ever hear. The fullness of history centers on the person and the mission of Jesus. Are we a part of it? If you notice as we go through the Gospel of Mark, you'll, you'll notice this over the next uh, however long we're in Mark. Mark, yeah, I know. I don't know how long it's going to be. Um, warning you now. As we go through Mark, you'll, you'll notice these stories are very short. 
that Mark, he describes what happens and he gives us very little commentary, if any commentary at all. I mean, this is a, a typical passage from the gospel of Mark. Mark describes what's happened and he doesn't say anything about it. He doesn't say anything about the significance. And that might be surprising for us, but he leaves the story open-ended every single time because he is forcing us to say, this is a picture of radical faith. This is a picture of radical repentance. This is a picture of radical obedience from people like Simon, Andrew, James, and John. And the question hanging over this text is, so what about you? What about you? The time has come. The kingdom is here. Believe, repent, follow, join the mission, proclaim the message. Jesus asks us, what about you? The fullness of human history, the fullness of history is health, centers on the person and the mission of Jesus. You see, Jesus has entrusted his church with the exact same message, this good news of the kingdom of who Jesus is, and a slightly different mission. It is not our job to usher in the kingdom. It is our job to, to make sure that the nations know, that people know about this kingdom. Jesus doesn't make just four fishers of men. He makes us all fishers of men. He has entrusted into each of our hands this urgent task of bringing people into the kingdom before judgment comes, because judgment is coming. And so he sends us out as fishers of men in order for us to bring people not into judgment, but instead to bring them into grace. He has called each of us to place him in the place of supreme importance in our lives. The fullness of history centers on the person and the mission of Christ. Are you a part of it? Let's pray. God, as we uh, think of this text, I know as I look at my own life, I, I confess that there are so many areas where my life is not centered on you, where I don't think about my commitment to you before my commitment to other things. I don't oftentimes think about repentance. I confess that oftentimes it is hard for me to think of things that I need to repent about. And God, I just ask for forgiveness for that. God, that you would help us as a people to be committed through costly faith, costly dependence upon you, that we would be a people committed to costly repentance, centering our lives around your way of living to be people who live lives of costly obedience, to be committed to the mission that you have entrusted to your church and to your people. Not doing so as a way to earn your favor, but instead as a response to the good news of the gospel that you proclaimed, but even more than proclaimed, that you ushered in. And so we thank you for that, God. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.